Today's scripture comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 31 and 32, which can be found on page 338 in the Bibles around you. If you are able, please join me in standing for the reading of God's word. First Chronicles chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name through his finished work, because of his grace, God, we call upon you and ask that you would come and meet with us this morning. God, would you make our hearts receptive to your word? Would you fill us with the knowledge of who you are? Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God this morning. God, would you open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see your truth. God, that we would know you and love you and live in line with what you desire. We ask in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Amen. So we've been in a series walking through the books of Chronicles want to just situate us for a moment this morning and then we'll dive into this little narrative section in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 that I think serves as a theme that we're going to see throughout the whole of the book. So if you have the notes, uh, grab them and we'll, we'll dive right in together. As the Lord has been at work in our church over the last season, so we find ourselves in a particular moment as a spiritual family that the Lord's calling us into a season of building his house together. You'll hear that language a lot. I mean, even in Ricky's announcement, as we talk about uh, builders and, and what we're seeking to call the men of our church to, there's this desire to be about building the house of the Lord, building what God has in his purposes for us as a spiritual family in this season. We're, we're, we're coming into a season of renewing work and refocusing as we seek to build and rebuild what the Lord has in front of us. This is in line with the vision of what he's put before us uh, as a spiritual family to become what, what I call a praying church that pursues his presence and his purposes for Kansas City. So for, for those of you who have been with us, this is a little bit of a review. If you're new with us, uh, what the Lord is inviting us into as a spiritual family, as a community, is to uh, pursue a vision of becoming and building a praying church. And essentially, you might go, isn't that, isn't that just saying the same thing twice, right? Like, isn't that just uh, making the most obvious statement that you could ever possibly make? Uh, but one thing that we've talked about a lot is, although most communities and most uh, churches would give lip service and understanding to the need for prayer to exist at the center and the heartbeat of what we do as the family of God, a lot of times we find that we don't actually give 
resources and energy and organize our labors together as a corporate people around pursuing these things. And so we want to be bold and clear and state that at the center of what we're doing, we want to be ordered and organized around worship and prayer together as the foundational reality of our church. This is how we see effective ministry happening in and through uh, our, our lives. We want to pursue God's face as a family and then see him release his purposes in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our church, and in our city. Letter B, so one of the ways that we're seeking to strengthen and establish what God has put before us is by preaching through the books of Chronicles. Um, I'm laughing because you might be like, why? These like obscure books in the Old Testament, you're wanting to like fan the flame of what God's at work doing. Why in the world would you pick these two books? Uh, I've, I've had that conversation a few times. A lot of people, when we started talking about this, come up to me and go, I've never heard a sermon on the books of Chronicles, let alone an entire series on Chronicles. Uh, So one of the reasons that I'm trying to lay the framework for and, and, and put the threads on the table for us to tie together, one of the reasons that I think these books are important for us is they were written specifically for a group of people who were returning in a season of rebuilding God's house as they had been called back from exile. So we've talked about that the last couple weeks, but one of the big pieces of information you have to know when you come to these books is the children of Israel had been taken away into captivity in Babylon because of their disobedience. And after God stirred the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus to send them back to their land to get about the work of rebuilding the temple and the city, they go back, but they find in the midst of this call, it's really hard. It's really opposed. I I, I love even what Ricky said a minute ago. It's really small right? Like it it seems insignificant and like, how can this be the glorious thing that God Almighty has called us to? Wouldn't it feel more potent and powerful and alive and exciting? And it's into this situation that this retelling of Israel's history is given as an encouragement and a strengthening to people who are seeking to once again call upon the name of the Lord and order their lives around true and pure worship in order to receive and experience God's purposes in their lives. So I think it is a wildly important book or set of books for us in this season. Look at letter C. The message of the books of Chronicles is that the people of God are designed. This is how we're designed to live under the rule of the right king, Right, The king that would come from David and in the New Testament as the people of God, we get the joy and the privilege and the delight to know that the king has come. King Jesus sits on the throne as the rightful heir to David, as the king over all the earth. And his people have to live up under his lordship. But we also see in this book that it's not just living up under the rightful king, it's living in line with rightly ordered worship, right? So what happens, and we're gonna narrate this through this morning's sermon, but what you see happen in the books of Chronicles is when the people of God forget these realities, right? When the 
king goes astray or when the people go astray and they fail to put at the center of their life together worship and pursuing the face of God in a spirit of repentance and faith, things go terribly for them. They descend quickly into blatant disobedience and darkness and destruction. But when God, by, in his grace, begins to stir the heart of a king or to stir the heart of a priest to call the people to return to him in a spirit of repentance and reorder their lives around rightly ordered worship and seeking his face, we see that God opens his hand and draws near to them with his favor and his grace bringing the whole of their lives into alignment with his kingdom purposes and his glory. So this vision of living under the blessings of God's kingdom was meant to orient the people's hearts toward a wholehearted pursuit of God, and likewise ours. Right? Like, I want to ask a real question. People of God, do you want to live under the blessings of the kingdom of God? Do we want to experience the blessings of God's kingdom in our midst, in our families, in our homes, in our church, in our city? The answer should be yes. In as much as he would give us, in as much as he would let us, we want to experience the favor and the blessings of God, not so that we can amass a lot and get more comfortable and settled in our ways, but so that the glory of Jesus Christ might be made known and his ways seen in our homes and in our city, in our workplaces. We want to see this break in. This book is a Vision. It's told in narrative form, but it is an argument. The argument is this God has prescribed a way. God has prescribed a way. He's given a pattern to experience His grace and the patterns of renewing and refreshing according to His hand. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So, if you've closed your Bible, I would like you to open, open it back up. We're going to start in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 with these two verses right in the middle of the genealogy. I'm just going to read them again for us. These are the men, verse 31, whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. So 1 Chronicles 6 gives us an important window into one of the primary aims of the author of Chronicles. Many scholars have noted that the genealogies are organized in such a way to highlight the importance of the tribe of Levi. We talked about that a little bit last week. You can go back and listen to that sermon. I did a whole sermon on the genealogies. Uh, but it's really clear when you dive in and you begin to look at these nine chapters in a literary capacity that the intent of the author is to highlight the tribes of Judah and then particularly the tribe of Levi. And we see this both because of the amount of space that the author gives to Levi, 
right? Like there's 80 some verses in this chapter that he talks about the Levites and the high priests and the, the singers and the allotment that's been given to them. Whereas a tribe like Naphtali only gets one verse, right? So he's attempting to demonstrate through sheer volume of information, this matters. But there's also another way that he's trying to attempt to highlight to you that this matters. There's a specific Hebrew literary structure that's intended to highlight and emphasize what happens at the center of something. It's kind of like working your way up a mountain and then working your way back down. And uh, uh, most scholars will say 1 Chronicles 6 sits at the pinnacle of this literary structure, right? They, he builds up to it, he highlights Levi, and then he comes back down through chapter nine. These two verses then are an extended narrative section in the genealogy intended to give us a theme of great importance followed throughout Chronicles. And I, again, we mentioned this last week, but as you're reading genealogies in the Bible, pay close attention to the places where the author breaks the pattern, right? So if he's going through and he's giving you one name and then another name and then another name, and then he slows down and he makes a narrative comment, that's really important. It's really important. And so we get two verses right in the heart of these, um, these uh, names and this pattern that he breaks in and gives you something that is going to be important. It's, I, I want us to see the theme. And so my hope today is to highlight in on the theme and then begin to show you how it comes up again and again through the book and then what that might say to us as the people of God. Think of this for any of you that are uh, into classical music. This is like a theme that gets introduced at the beginning that's going to be repeated at later points throughout the work and adapted and augmented and expanded and played around. This is a theme that he is introducing for us. Letter B, these verses highlight something to us, particularly the central place of the Levites who were commissioned by David at this point to minister to the Lord through song, right? So you have several categories under the tribe of Levi. You have the high priest, the one guy that gets to go in once a year to make the sacrifice for the propitiation or the placating of God's wrath against sin, right? One person gets to go in once a year to do that. That's the high priest. And you get his line in the first 15 verses of chapter six. But then you have the broader priesthood who offer sacrifices day in and day out and keep the house of God, right? They keep the utensils and they keep uh, uh, the, the showbread and they keep the lampstands lit. These priests were from the tribe of Levi and they ministered before the Lord. But then at the time of David, David institutes another layer of Levites into the whole system. He tells a group of people what I want you to do is to dwell in the house of God and to sing the songs of God. I'll pay all your bills. I'll keep food on your table. 
You don't have to worry about any of the administration. You don't have to worry about any of the, the going to war. You don't have to worry about where your land is going to be. We'll take care of all of that. Your one job is to tell God how amazing he is. At the center of the people, we want a portrait that what we exist for is to align our lives with the glory and the greatness of God. And you are going to do that through singing. It's a remarkable moment in the life of Israel. Let her see one of the most unique aspects of David's whole life is his revelation of how worship exists in the place of God's economy and his kingdom. David possessed a unique understanding of how God ordered his whole creation and sought to bring the whole of his life and all of his assignment, meaning he wanted to, in whatever capacity he could and was given, bring others into this as well, is all that's saying. So he had this extravagant heart of worship. We see he wrote the majority of the book of Psalms is attributed to David, right? So he has this remarkable gift and understanding of worshiping the Lord in and through song. But he also goes, I'm going to rally everybody I can. So whatever capacity the Lord gives me, I am going to put this at the center of it. So if we're running around in the caves of Adullam for our lives, and I've got some guys who are gathered to me that are disgruntled and angry, this is going to be at the heart of it. If I get to be the king over all Israel, this is going to be at the heart of it. I am going to use every resource, every bit of influence and organizational power I have to highlight and emphasize this. Look at the top of page two. So we'll walk through this in the weeks to come. But letter H, if after David became the king, we see the first thing that he does is capture Jerusalem. He understands this needs to be the place for the house of God. Immediately after this, he sets himself to set up a tabernacle for worship at the heart of the government. That's 1 Chronicles 13, which I find to be amazing. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. But David gets everybody on his team. Somehow he convinces all the military leaders, all the economic leaders, all the guys in charge of the infrastructure, the guys in charge of building the roads. He's like, what we need to do is take money and pursue this. And they somehow go, yeah, we see it. Let's do it. Right? Can you imagine that being a political guy's platform? I mean, we're coming into another election cycle. Can you imagine how hard it would be to convince a group of people to put worship at the middle of something? It's not the easiest sell. Right? David does it. Then he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and establishes the house of God for perpetual worship. Letter I, he then sets up Levites before the ark to worship God. This is 4,000 full-time musicians, 288 singers, and 4,000 gatekeepers, meaning these are the people that keep the grounds, make sure the lights stay on, all that stuff. In other words, at the center of David's expression of his government were nearly 9,000 people on the payroll to facilitate perpetual worship before the Lord. These are the details of what 1 Chronicles 6 is putting into the, into the narrative. Look at these. This is 1 Chronicles 25. 
The number of them, along with their brothers who were trained in the singing to the Lord, all were skillful. There were 288 of them. There were 24,000 of these, David said, shall have charge of the work in the house of the Lord. 6,000 officers and judges, meaning helping people navigate disputes and judgment. There's going to be 4,000 groundskeepers and 4,000 offering to the Lord with instruments that I've made for praise. And then we see at the end of 1 Chronicles 9, the singers were free from other services, meaning, again, he paid their bills. Letter J. So David builds the tabernacle this way in accordance with the pattern of, an, of the heavenly temple that was revealed to him by the Lord. Look at this in 1 Chronicles 28. This is Solomon talking about what he received from his father when David wanted to go about building the temple. Right? He had a plan. There was a blueprint for this. The temple, its houses, its treasuries, upper rooms, inner chambers, room for the mercy seat, all the things that David had in his mind, the courts, the houses around the Lord, around the house of the Lord, the surrounding chambers, even how to divide up the priests and the Levites, the work that they'd be giving themselves to, all the vessels, all this, Solomon says, he gave to me where? From the Lord, right? David had a revelation of this. This wasn't just something he came up with off the top of his head. It wasn't like, I like music. I think everybody else would like music. Let's give this a try. God revealed something to him and said, this is what I desire at the heart of what you're about. Then letter K, David commanded his sons to then continue this in obedience to the commandment given to him through the prophets. Look at 2 Chronicles 29. He stationed Levites in the house of the Lord according to the commandment of David and Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was where? Was it from David? No, it was from the Lord through his prophets. So this is what God wanted. You might ask the question, why? Why then? Why does God want this, right? I want to look at two potential reasons here. One's kind of like a fundamental reason, an essential reason, and one is what I'd call a reason of like outcome, right? One's essential and one's outcome. Look at Roman numeral three. This is the essential reason. God wants to be worshiped. Why does God do it this way? Because he wants it. He's worth it. He is immensely worth the extravagant worship of his people. God wants you to know something in going through all the rigmarole of setting aside all the money and the time and the people and the energy and the skill and the, all of it. Why? God would say, because I want it because I'm worth it, because this is what I'm seeking after. David understood something by revelation to be foundational about God, namely that God is zealous to be worshiped. God is zealous to have worship. He is passionate about it. He is seeking after it. He is longing for it. God wants to be worshiped. This is in his heart, we see throughout scripture. 
He's zealous to be worshiped and he has designed his kingdom to be established on the worship of his people. The chronicler describes this desire that the Lord has to find a heart that's ordered toward him in worship. I have it here, but actually take your Bible. Flip over to 1 Chronicles 16. Or 2 Chronicles 16, I'm sorry. A few pages beyond. I want you to see this in your own scripture. Underline it. This is in a remarkably important text in these books. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. This is a picture of God Almighty sitting on the throne, scanning the earth, looking for something. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, looking for something, longing for something, seeking for something. It's this like passionate, zealous look. I'm looking, scanning my eyes over the, over the earth, over the whole earth, looking for something, longing for something, seeking for something. Well, what is it? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So we get these two pictures here, right? This picture of the Lord seeking, pursuing, longing for, even, dare you say, restless, looking for, scanning the earth to and fro for a heart that is blameless toward him. Now, when you read blameless, that doesn't mean sinless. That doesn't mean without sin. It means turn toward him in humble faith and seeking him. That's what that means. So the chronicler gives us this. Jesus comes along and says the same thing. John chapter four. John chapter four, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he says there's coming a day when because of the new covenant, you're not gonna worship on this mountain or on that mountain. You're gonna worship in spirit and truth. That's what the father is what? Seeking such people. Do you know God is looking for something? God is seeking after something. God is zealous for something. God wants to be worshiped. He wants you and me and his people and all people to look at him and recognize how great he is, how glorious he is, how merciful he is, how full of splendor and how captivating he is, how just and wise and holy he is. This is what God desires. Look at page three. And we see that this is what God is going to get. In all eternity, the book of Revelation shows us that he's going to get what he's seeking for. Revelation 4. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then the chapter over, we see that Jesus is brought up into this worship, this perpetual, unending worship. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. This is what God wants and it is what he will get. Letter E. And we see that there is this unique reality that God has ordered his kingdom around agreeing with him by his people in the place of worship and prayer. Meaning, 
God manifests his presence and his power more where his people agree with him. Right? This is Isaiah chapter 30. You can read that. John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So we get this. Why? Why did this happen this way? The first reason is an essential reason. Because God wants to be worshipped. Number one, regardless of the outcome of it, he's worth it. Right? He is worth it. All life, all, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people, all giving exaltation and glory and might and honor to the one who created all things. He's just worth that. But he's also demonstrated that he's ordered his kingdom in such a way that he desires to take up his residence in the place where he is worshipped, where he establishes his purposes there. Look at Roman numeral four. This is the outcome we see, though. The one reason is essential. The second is its outcome. You can call this renewal patterns we see throughout Chronicles. Again, the theme is introduced in 1 Chronicles 6. Then we get the expansion and the revisiting of the theme throughout. So in accordance with David's command that the kings of Israel would order his, the kingdom around worship and ministry to the Lord in song, every season of revival that you see, every season of renewal, every season of refreshing in the history of Israel is always tied to reordering their life around this. Right? This is what the chronicler is doing. He puts this little key at the beginning and he goes, you're going to have to use this to open the door throughout the rest of the book. Here's the key. David had a revelation of what God was worth. He ordered it and established it that way. And then he commanded that the people would continue to do that. When they didn't, they fell away. When they did, God would renew them. He would refresh them. Every time the nation would forsake rightly ordered worship at the center of their national life, they would descend into darkness, disobedience, destruction. Renewing the order of worship would bring about a season of reprieve, blessing, and renewal from the hand of the Lord. This is what we see, again, go back a couple chapters to 2 Chronicles 7. Look at it in your Bible. 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon is dedicating the temple. He's finished the temple, the work that he's set out to do. This place where the people of God can seek his face, know his presence, be filled with his life, expand his purposes to the ends of the earth. He's finished this and then the Lord shows up and he tells them, him, this is how it's going to function. And then he gives him this metric for understanding what he's going to do. If my people, meaning if you fall away, if you go your other way, if you forsake this way, if I shut the heavens up so there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people called upon by my name, called by my name, they humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin 
and I will hear their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Again, you have this picture of the Lord going, I'm sitting here watching this place. And when you run off and go the other way, when you pursue idolatry, when you fall into the love of other things, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, when you run the other way and I begin to oppose you because I love you, I'm sitting here watching. If my people called by my name, humble themselves, repent, turn to me, seek my face, I will welcome them with open arms and I will pour out my favor upon them. That is what he is saying here. The prophets, we don't just see this in Chronicles. This is, this is all the Old Testament prophets. I want to just highlight two of them to you. They give the same pattern. Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord. And Joel's speaking into a time when he says, hey, guys, I'm going to do what the Lord said to Solomon he would do. I'm sending locusts to come and devour. And then I'm going to send an army that's way more intense than locusts. And Joel breaks in and he goes, even now, even now, we are on a collision course with the judgment of God and the crisis moment where he hands us over to darkness because of our waywardness and our sin. We are on a collision course. Even right now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't just do it externally. Don't just put on a show inside. Hate the things that I hate. Love the things that I love. Rend your garments, or rend your heart, not your garments. Return to me. Why? Because I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm merciful. I abound in steadfast love and relent over disaster. And then Joel comes in and goes, who knows what he'll do? Who knows? Maybe the exact place we were running headlong for destruction, he will turn and leave a blessing there. Maybe he will turn and leave a blessing. Hosea 6 says the same thing. Come, people of God, come. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us. He sent pestilence. He shut up the heavens. He sent things to oppose us because in our waywardness, he loves us and he doesn't want us to go that way. Come, return. He has torn us that he might heal us. He struck us down, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we might live before him. Let us know this for sure. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. And he will come to us like the showers, the spring rains that water the earth. Do we want the showers? Do we want the rain of God's refreshing and reviving presence? Peter gave the same outline of renewal in the New Testament. Acts chapter 3. Repent, therefore. Turn back. God will blot out your sins. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then he goes, and I'll send times of refreshing from the hand of God that you might be re revived and restored. All right, let's just fly through a couple of these. Jehoshaphat reforms the people of God by putting singers and musicians right at the front. We see this in 2 Chronicles 20. 
He appoints them to sing to the Lord, praise him in holy attire. They come to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And in this time, what happens? It was quiet. God gave him rest all around. Hezekiah, he stations the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, according to the commandment of David. Look at the top of page four. He does all these things, and what happens? End of verse 21. They prospered. Josiah, a great revival and renewing. He puts the Levites, they teach Israel, and they're holy to the Lord. And they put the holy ark back into the house. They serve him. They prepare themselves. The singers, the sons of Asaph, they're in their place, right as David commanded. We actually see outside of the Chronicles, the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they experience times of reprieve and renewal. Both of them tied to establishing this at the heart of God's people, yet again. Okay, so this is the pattern. Here's what I want to say. This is why we're preaching this. This is why we're preaching this. Let me just give us a call to return to the Lord. Letter A, we are currently walking through, I believe, one of the most seismic and dramatic transitional periods in all of human history. At every level of society, both in the Western world and globally, we're experiencing cultural, societal, political, economic, relational unrest. Every one of you feels it. Every one of you in your job, in your family, when you turn the TV on, when you talk to people who are walking away from the church, walking away from Jesus, you feel it. We are walking through one of the most seismic, unprecedented transitions in human history. At no time in human history have so many people en masse it been so accepted and so in the waters to outright reject authority, all authority, God's authority, state authority, family authority, whatever authority structure there is, we just want to buck against it, right? We are walking in, I believe, like the early moments of what you see in Isaiah 5, where he says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, wholesale. It's seeping into our moment. And at the same time, the church is walking through one of the fastest and most comprehensive transitions seen in history. People are walking away from Jesus in droves. There's not a single person in the room who doesn't know somebody deconstructing or walking away or turning their heart and hardening their heart to the things of God. This is not normal. Uh, here's the hard part. I, I just have to get us. I, I got to get in us. Because it's the water we swim in, it's so easy for you and me to go, this is just the way things are. I want to ring a bell and go, this is not the way things are. This is not normal. It is not normal. Let all of history declare this to us. Let the word of God declare this to us. Let our, our, our generations of parents and grandparents and 
forebearers declare to us, this is not normal. This is not normal. We need to be awakened to that. This is not the way things normally go. And it would be so easy for us because we swim in the water. We walk around and we go like, what in the world is water? Right? We don't know the season of life we live in because we swim in it. We breathe the air. We can't see it for what it is. Let me stand up. Let the word of God speak to you and go, this is not normal. This is not normal. So the question then is, what do we do? Right? We see in the scriptures a pattern. Seek and pursue the face of God as the means through which we experience renewal. Right? We're never, ever without hope. We're never without hope. Who knows? Maybe right in the place where we are running headlong into crisis and judgment and destruction, maybe the God who is gracious, abounding in love, merciful, full of compassion and steadfast uh, uh, mercy to us, maybe right there he will turn and put a blessing down. Maybe he will do that. He's given us the means. The means is to lay hold of his face in a spirit of repentance, in a spirit of faith. Letter E, God's inviting us, I think, to pursue what I might call like a new wineskin as a spiritual family. This is what I mean when I say a praying church. I, I think he's inviting us into something. And one of the things that I, I get to see, and I don't know if you're aware of, just in talking with other pastors or looking at things going on around the church, like God is doing something. God is waking pe- people up. He's bringing about this sense of like disillusionment and dis, dis, uh, disenchantment or discontentment with the status quo. And you can see that, I have it in letter D, this pattern that God often works on. And I feel like there are people, even in this room right now, that are wondering, what is it the Lord is doing, right? We've been lulled to sleep, so to speak, from a season of over being over-blessed and over-familiar with the things of this world. And we've, we've, we've been able to go like, you know what, a little bit of love for the world is okay. We've actually like buddied up to it and become okay with it. And I think there are people, even in this room, I know that the Lord's doing it all over the place. He's beginning to break your heart. And I was talking to somebody this week. It feels a little bit like, I don't know if there are people in the room, I want to say this because one of the things about the season of disillusionment is it's really easy to believe that you're all alone. It's really easy to believe you're alone. I heard somebody say it like this this week. It's like that moment right before you wake up when you know you're asleep, but you don't know how to wake up all the way. I think there are people in the room that feel that right now with the things of the Lord. You're going like, I know this isn't right. I know this isn't the way. I don't know if I have the strength to be fully alive and fully awake and fully alert. What do we do? We call on his name. We seek his face. We lay hold of him in a spirit of repentance, a spirit of faith. We go, God, 
You have to show up. If you don't show up, we have no hope. Unless the God who's merciful, gracious, abounding in love and steadfast mercy, unless he turns and leaves a blessing, we have no hope. But we do have hope in him because this is who he is. There's an invitation, I believe, to press into the Lord, regardless of the cost, with a spirit of repentance and a spirit of pursuing him. The promise of the scripture is that God delights in mercy and in steadfast love. Who knows what he will do? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?